Hello, and welcome to the Aseret Podcast, where we learn about character, kindness, wisdom, and values from living examples of inspiring people. Do you really need to listen to a podcast on the commandment, do not murder? Is there anything more obvious and fundamental to human flourishing than this command? It is likely, hopefully, that none of you have truly been tempted to commit this heinous crime. Except for this week, we just commemorated Yom HaShoah, remembering the six million victims of our people, of blessed memory, who lost their lives to cold-blooded Nazi murder. This is but yesterday in history, not to mention how much more innocent blood is shed in our world today. And as a Deber, there is so much that each and every one of us need to internalize about it. And beyond murder, as a Deber, there is so much that each and every one of us need to internalize about it. Lotir Tzach is the first Deber that deals with the world of interpersonal relationships, Ben Adam Lechavero. In it, we learn about the sanctity, dignity, respect we each must have for ourselves and each other as being created in the image of God. What better way to discuss this Deber than through a conversation about mental health, Judaism, and the importance of choosing life, not just physically, but psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. In this week's episode, I speak with Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig, who is a leading expert on mental health and halacha. He is the founder of the Magle Nefesh Center for Mental Health, Community, and Halacha, the rabbi of Netzach Menashe Community in Israel, and a teacher in Midrash at Lindenbaum. He has authored several books, including the recently published and groundbreaking work on the interplay between mental health and halacha called Nafshi Bisha'alti. It is soon to be translated into English. Ravioni is a hero of mine, and his love, passion, and commitment to helping people heal is inspiring and uplifting. It can really be felt in this conversation. I am so thankful for Ravioni's initiative to make Jewish law relevant and sensitive to the unique needs of individuals and communities who are struggling with mental health challenges. He is a living example of someone willing to fill a void and do what's right with courage and care. Come, listen, and learn together about the importance of mental health in Jewish practice while gathering some practical tools that each individual and their respective communities can apply in order to create a more sensitive and welcoming environment for psychological well-being for anyone, God forbid, struggling in any way. Please go to mnefesh.org, see link in the show notes, where you can book a ch- to discuss any concerns with a qualified rabbinic authority who has expertise in mental health. Even have your therapist come along so that you and the Magli Nefesh team can work together to ensure that your care fits with your religious situation. Rav Yoni Rosenzweig, thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So first way I want to start this off is what comes to mind for you when you hear the Diber Lotirzach, do not murder? So I think that um, Rav Soloveitchik once uh, said it best. Um, he once said, oh, you know, people think, well, Tirzach is obvious, right? Like, why do we even need this? You know, is it obvious that you're not supposed to kill another individual in cold blood, you know? But when you think about it, right, it's not obvious at all. Look at today's modern world. Look at America, the discussion about Roe v. Wade, right, and, and, and abortion. Uh, look at questions of end of life when a person is connected to a machine and can you disconnect, you're not disconnect if they're in pain, if they're not in pain. Meaning these questions of taking a person's life, uh, whether it's potential life or someone who, once again, is in pain, right? There are borderline cases that need to be discussed, even with regards to Lot Yertzach. It's not an obvious commandment. It may seem simple, but there are many fraught uh, situations and contexts in which it's not simple at all. And I think that 
what we're going to talk about today um, is actually an example of that as well, um, where Lotir Tzach, once again, may seem obvious and clear, but really extra special care needs to be taken um, to make sure that we are not transgressing this commandment. The main approach that we have when looking at the Aserah Sedibros, the way that we are at Project Aserah, is to see them not just as mitzvot, because they're not just mitzvot. Even within, within the 10, there are more just on the pshat level, the simple level, there are more than 10 mitzvot. But more as klalim, that the, all of the Torah, the Shorshei Kol Mitzvot, you could find them. And I think Rav Sadia Gon has actually done that before, gone, gone through the 613 and said, which, which mitzvot connect to which dibir. So of course, just on the simple level, as the big issues you brought up with abortion, with end of life care, there's a controversy about what does it mean, the sanctity of life, lotir tzach, et cetera, don't murder. But as a dibir, seeing it as a big overarching principle, what are some of the things that come to mind for you, some ideas or values that, that come to you? I think that, first of all, you're absolutely right about Rav uh, Sadiq and of course, different uh, Rishonim uh, looked at the Aserah in different ways. But yes, they are definitely uh, uh, principles um, of our life. By the way, um, I don't know if you remember, but you know, uh, in the time of the of Chazal, the Gemara, they used to actually um, say the Aserah Tadibot in the morning davening, and then they took that out because it became uh, apparent that people thought those Pesukim were more important than the other psukim, and that's why they took it out. But yes, you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, what that shows is that they are principles that we need to follow. With regards to Lot Yotzach, I think that we have something very, very um, uh, uh, important over here, where it basically says that a person's, um, a person's life is sacred. Now, that may be like, okay, but that's, that's, again, that's obvious, right? But is it, is it really obvious that a person's life is sacred? I don't just mean that it's important. I don't just mean that it's an ethical value not to kill, but that a person's life is truly sacred. We know that Lot Yertzach is one of the three uh, uh, mitzvahs that you're supposed to transgress the entire um, Torah not to, uh, you know, not to, um, to do it, and um, even at the cost of your own life. And the Gemara says, Why do you think that your blood is redder in the blood of your friend. And so valuable is the life of an individual that even your own life needs to be given for it. So the sanctity of life is above all else. And that's why the briskers, I think that's also very well known, uh, used to say that when it comes to pikuach nefesh, they were the most stringent about pikuach nefesh, about issues of, of, of life. That is, and the reason here, here is the essential issue is that life is the background for everything that we do. Being alive is the, is the uh, first and, and foremost principle that allows us to do all the other things. And so we have to first and foremost be alive, first and foremost survive, first and foremost remain in that situation where we can then build you know, the spiritual connections and the social connections and the ethical ideas, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But first and foremost, the sanctity of life as an ideal that comes before everything, that is uh, paramount over here. Already in Bereshis, we see with, this is a very humanistic, broad klal or principle for all human beings, that we, we've gone for the, the first five of the Dibrot, which are more or less related vertically uh, between us and Hashem, and then the, the bridge between parents. 
And now we're learning about our relationship with human beings. And the first thing we see all, all the way back in Bereshis is Shofeich dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafeich ki betzalem Elohim asa esa adam. So I think in this, this pasuk, we're seeing the inverse or the, the other side of Lotir Tzach, which is that every person is created in the image of God. How, how do you see th those two being juxtaposed with each other? I think that uh, Lotir Tzach is it's just two words, right? It's like a very short commandment. And it says straight into the point, Lotir Tzach, you know, you do not kill, right? It's important sometimes to take away the uh, the reasoning behind something, right? Because a lot of times, and we've seen this in history, I mean, if we, the easiest example is the Holocaust, right? But it's easy to stamp out a human life when you don't view it as human. You know, it's easy to make a contention and say, you know, oh, it's not Tzalem Elohim. This is the Tzalem Elohim, this individual. You know, like it's easy for us to always rationalize away. And so the Pasuk here is very clear, Lo Tirzah. But Besides the legal, technical commandment, you're right that the Pasuk and Bereshit is giving us a context for that. You know, and it's saying, you know, even though, once again, when you keep the law, remember not to contextualize it, not to say, but in certain cases, you know, no, no, no. But Selem Elohim Asayat Adam is telling us, nevertheless, that the reason for this is that a person is indeed made in the image of God. And that means that it's not only about what I said before, the sanctity of life, which is embedded in Lothir Tzach, but that there's also potential here, meaning that there is something else that we can develop beyond that, right? Shofech dama adam, as you say, ba'adam damo shofech, right? We also, you know what we learned from that, I don't know if you know, shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam. Who is an adam ba'adam? So, so according to Rabbi Shmel, that's the uterus, meaning that's the, that's the, the, the baby that's in the, that's in the uterus is an Adam Ba'adam, it's a person within a person. In other words, what, are we, what am I trying to say by mentioning that? That individual is not yet born. He's a potential human being, right? He can be born and he can develop into something. And that's what that Pasuk is talking about. It's not just talking about a person as he is at that moment, don't kill someone because it's not right. Also recognize that the person that you're killing is a Tzalem Elohim, is someone who has potential, someone who can grow, and you have to look to the future. We'll talk about this a little bit later, probably. You have to look to the future as well in order to evaluate what exactly it is that you're doing. Perhaps you recall also Kain and Hevel, right? Where it says, Right? The blood of your brother is shouting from the land. But it says, which is a plural, implying many bloods. So Rashi there explains, his blood and the blood of his descendants, meaning you didn't just kill one individual. You killed an entire branch. You killed dozens and dozens of potential human beings, of potential generations that could have come. We always have to take that into account, meaning murdering someone, besides it being a, a despicable ethical act, also has significant ramifications for Tselem Elohim. The Tzalem Elohim of, you, of yourself, the murderer, the Tzalem Elohim of the person you murdered, and the potential Tzalem Elohim of everything that could have come from that. It's seeing across generations. We think back to, you know, my rabbi said this to me before I got married, that Avram Avinu was one, one family, one person, but we're seeing how many both physical and spiritual ancestors of that one person in the line. 
And I, when I see this juxtaposition between murder and being B'Tselem Elohim, I think Rabbi Foreman pointed out that if you look at the language of the way Paro describes B'nai Israel, it's almost like they're, uh, they're it's, I think it's V'yishretzu, V'yirbu, there's a, a, an element of non-human form to be able to, to justify. When you see somebody in a non-human form, it's easier to take their life uh, because they're not B'Tselem Elohim anymore. And so from the big perspective, the sanctity of human life, seeing multi-generations of an impact that people can have, every single person is precious, is all very important. But aside from the real life and death, because when the Torah describes life and death, it doesn't just describe it in terms of living and dying. It also describes it in terms of certain quality of life that we're supposed to have. And so as a, as a, as a debayer, I, I think about the, the not just life and death in that sense, but, but living and what does it mean to be alive? And when I, when, that, when I think about it in that sense, it's so much more about the quality of how we choose to live and make life. Your work in mental health that you've been doing now for a long time, I've, I'm a graduate from Web Yeshiva, doing a lot of work there. I've seen the courses that you've done there. Just talk to me a little bit about how you got started into, started into this and what it means for you. Right. So I completely agree with what you just said. I think it's a very significant point about not just living but quality of life not just do we are we alive but how do we live right and those things can many times also have an effect on whether we can stay alive as we'll talk about later on but to answer your specific question how did i get started so i um i got started in this field i've been a community rabbi for um i would say about about 16 years or so um in Beit Shemesh, where I reside currently, I've been here for 12 years. Um, and about five and a half years ago, I started getting more questions that pertain to mental health um, issues. Um, and as a rabbi, because I did not know the answer to these questions, what I did was I started looking around in the books. So that's what rabbis do. They are opening books and trying to figure out what it says and, uh, and what sources there are. Um, so that's what I did. And looking at the Jewish library, I realized that there isn't much. You know, that was a bit surprising to me, but actually there isn't much written. So I collected whatever there was, but I realized that a lot of work needs to be done. And just for your listeners, you know, to get an idea, right, I'm talking about questions like, you know, can I listen to music on Shabbat if I uh, am suffering from depression, anxiety? an eating disorder, borderline personality disorder? Can I journal on Shabbat? How do I deal with OCD and mikvah and kashrut and other things, tefillah, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, excessive vowing uh, is also a question for OCD. Uh, autism, uh, the connecting with some of the uh, people with autism are nonverbal and they want to connect out, you know, with uh, certain uh, what's called assistive technology and they have to use that on Shabbat in order to communicate what they're talking about. Respecting your parents, you know, um, who have uh, possibly abused you in different kinds of ways, meaning m many, many kinds of questions that came across, that I came, that started coming across. And I realized there were no good answers um, for these things. And so I came to my friend who's a psychiatrist, Dr. Shmuel Harris. He has a clinic in Jerusalem. And um, I said to him, let's learn this stuff. We were going to be learning together. And so we began, we began to learn every single week. And I learned with him for two and a half years uh, in order to gain some form of mastery 
of the mental health world because I don't have a degree in mental health. In order to be able to rule on the questions of mental health, we really need to have an understanding of what is going on in that world. And that's what I did for that amount of years. And after that, I put all that information into a first draft and uh, we'll stop the story here, but uh, it became a book eventually. Uh, and that's how I got started. And it's being translated into English or is, is, is it being translated into English? Yes, the book is currently in Hebrew. Uh, I think it's become available in the States uh, this or next week. Um, and yes, it's currently being translated. We hope for a translation by early 2023, but I can't yet commit to an exact date. The organization is called Magle Nefesh. Uh, right now, for people who want to, to know that there are opportunities immediately to book meetings with different Rebbeim, including Ravioni, on issues related to spiritual questions around mental health, as well as halachic questions. This is a massive undertaking, um, something that I have not, have not seen yet. And as both a rabbi and psychotherapist, I'm trying to navigate, figure out what that means in today's day and age. We have, you know, I think it comes up in, in Devarim. How do you see your job and your role in the work that you're doing related to this injunction from Hashem to Uvacharta Bachaim? That's a tough question because it relates to, I think, two different things. I mean, on, the, on a very simple level, right, we can simply say right, choosing life is something which those who suffer suicidal ideation have to do every day, you know, um, and it's not simple. You know, people with certain kinds of, shall we call them intrusive thoughts, uh, certain kinds of disorders, conditions, may many times suffer greatly. And honestly, they, they, many times they just want to end it. They just want to end everything that's going on. They don't feel valued by the community. They don't feel necessarily valued by their family. They don't feel like they are like they are understood, and honestly, they feel like a burden. They feel like like everyone would be better without them. Everyone would be better off if they were gone. And so, for them to choose life every single day is a massive undertaking, but an important one. So that's uvacharta b'chayim for sure in the simple in the simple meaning from their perspective. But there's more over here. Um, I think that. Um, we have to choose life, meaning as a community. What I mean to say is that we have to understand the need of someone with a mental health concern is many times for a supportive framework. And a supportive framework, I think we make the mistake of thinking that that means finding a good psychologist or a good psychiatrist or a good hospital. I'm not saying those things are not important, of course they are, yeah? But the psych ward is not a solution long-term. It's a solution in order to put out a fire. Yeah, so you want to put out fires, you want to take care of someone, they're in danger right now. Of course, you take them to the psychiatric ward and they're cared for for X amount of time, sure. But that's not a long-term solution. At the end of the day, we as communities need to choose life for those individuals. So once again, let me give you an example, right? I always say, let's say someone loses the use of their legs. And they have to get to show, they have to get to the, to this, right, to Daven. So what are you going to do? You're going to drive, you're going to push them with a wheelchair. 
Now, what do you need in order to get to Shul? Sometimes there are steps. So you'll need a ramp or something along those lines. I always say, well, who's going to build the ramp? The doctors? The occupational therapist? The dealing with the person? The uh, uh, physical therapist? No, of course not. The only people who will build the ramp are the community. The community will build the ramp. And that's what we need to do. We need to build ramps for people. I mean, we need to take responsibility as a community and understand that these individuals need our help. They need our assistance. They need us to make them feel like we want them to come. If a person comes to the wheelchair and always has to be picked up the stairs with the wheelchair, some, eventually he might not come. He might say, what's the point? I'm just a burden to any, everybody. And also I'm embarrassed when they pick me up like that. But if he can be wheeled up the ramp, then he feels welcome. And he feels like, okay, somebody wants me here. You know, this is of significance to somebody. And that's obviously very, very different. It's a very different sort of feeling, right? To choose life for that individual means to choose that they can continue living the life that they were living before. They can continue interacting with people. They can continue coming to show and being part of everything that's going on. That's choosing life. If the person is suffering from dementia, so are we going to, Say, oh, well, he might call out in the middle of davening. He might embarrass himself or other people. Or are we going to say, we can put up with that. You know, we can, we're okay with that. We want him to come. We want to choose that he can have the life that he had before, or continue having the life that he had before, right? That's of significance to us. So we choose life for that individual. We have the ability, it's, it's very it's very like the, uh, the discussion surrounding LGBTQ, etc. Yeah where people basically have to decide whether they want those individuals within the Jewish Orthodox community or not. Are you telling that person, this is not for you? And some people say that. Some people say, you know, there is no room for such individuals within our community. I disagree with that position. But some people, at, look, at least, I say always, at least you're honest. At least you don't make, you know, promises to the person and say, oh yeah, you can have a great life here. No, you basically tell the person, if you're a part of the Orthodox community, you're going to have a, a crummy life. You're going to have a terrible life. It's going to be sad. It's going to be bad. Leave. You know, we're, we're not, uh, we don't want second-class citizens here. Okay. <laughs> At least you're being honest that he's going to be a second-class citizen. And that's that. But it'll be almost easier for them to hear that. hundred percent. But I don't, but I don't agree that we have to say that. Meaning I right. would like to see how we can make them feel like they're part of the community. First-class citizens, people who can come, be involved, you know, etc. cetera, uh, take part, right? We don't have to erase a pasuk from the Torah in order to make that happen. But, but, but that's just an, as an aside. It's the same thing with mental health. You know, are we saying to the people, come, feel part. We are happy to accommodate. We want to. We want to choose that you'll be able to choose an orthodox life, you know, and be able to continue in that road, not to take away your ideals or not to take away the things that are valuable to you and meaningful to you. No, we're going to find a way that you can live your life with the mental condition that you're suffering. And this juxtaposition between community and the individual, that the, the, the Pasuk that I mentioned starts Ha'idosi Bachem, speaking to the plural, and then it's telling every individual to choose life, but it's within a community. It's very hard uh, to find, even if, like you, you said, if you have a psychologist, a therapist, that's really important. But as a milieu, as a world around you, where someone can actually follow up and say to you, not treat you on eggshells and say, how are you doing today? What's going on? Just like you would see if you saw someone with, you know, a, a wrist, whatever injury, and you'd say, how are you doing today? Like, a, 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 you know, how can I support you? You can reach out individually. Just a, a community or a culture 
where mental health is more spoken about seriously. You mentioned you're a community rav. You've been doing this for many, many years, and now you're running Magli Nefesh. How have you integrated, as Magli Nefesh seems to be on a certain level, individuals getting support? How have you integrated that into the community? What do some of the first steps look like for people that want to be, let's say, mental health conscious as a kahila? Good question. Um, first of all, you've already mentioned Magdalene Nefesh twice. I'll just explain, you know, that, uh, yes, the book that I wrote on Halacha Mental Health basically became another project, you know, led me to another project of creating basically a center for Halacha community and uh, mental health where people can get answers. We can train rabbis in these areas um, and raise awareness, you know, within the Orthodox community. So that was very important for us that we did that. Um, People do ask me many times what we can do as a community. Um, that's a very good question. I think that um, there's a lot to say um, about this. I, um, I feel that we, uh, we don't know how to talk about mental health. As a first step, I think that people need to understand and, and, and realize how to talk about mental health. And I want to explain what I mean about, by that because sometimes uh, when I say those things, people I might even get a little bit offended. They might say, what do you mean I don't know how to talk about mental health? Of course I know. Yeah, like what's the problem? I uh, I know people with mental health conditions or whatever it is could be, you know, and I'm not saying simple, we really do know. But I give the following example, okay? From uh, what I call the, it's the, the Shabbos uh, meal um, uh, test, okay? <laughs> Litmus test, so to speak, you know, is what I, it's like, imagine the Shabbos table, I tell people, okay? Imagine you're at the Shabbos table. Imagine that um, that you uh, you are sitting with friends and someone comes up and says, uh, oh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's someone in the community who unfortunately has cancer and they, they raise the person's name and, what and et cetera, et cetera. And then what happens is that, uh, you know, everyone says, oh, that's so terrible. And then they say, um, are they getting radiation, chemotherapy? You know, how, how, how long is it gonna be? What kind of cancer do they have? Have they seen an oncologist? All, all the things that I just said are like things that people say in a regular conversation. Now, notice that most people who talk about those things, they have no specific knowledge of mental health. In other words, they're not doctors, they're not mental health professionals. On a small talk level, we know what to say when cancer is being discussed just on a regular small talk level. And I think that we're not even afraid to visit people with cancer in the hospital. We'll come visit them, we'll say, hello, what's going on? In other words, people feel comfortable to come and talk. Now let's imagine the very same sort of scenario, but this time with mental health. So you're sitting at the Shabbos table and someone says, so-and-so has depression. What happens now? Does anybody really know? Do they go to a psychologist, psychiatrist, a regular GP? Do they need to be admitted to the psych ward? Do they take antidepressants? Does that mean that there's suicidal ideation? Does that, how long is this going to take? Is it treatable? Is it something that you, right? People don't even know. And they don't even know what medication, you know, like, sorry, not what I'm going to They don't even know what, uh, what to say to that person. What's okay to say to such a person? Should I call them? Should I leave them alone? Should, if I meet them, should I say anything? Should I raise it? Should I not raise it? You know, like there's a lot of stuff that people don't know what to do. So then what happens as a result of that, right? If we don't know how to talk about it, then it's awkward. And if it's awkward,
then in many times people don't uh, feel comfortable sharing it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's awkward. So you know, like, what are we? We're gonna, we're you know, we're gonna we're gonna raise this, right? So those who are suffering don't want to raise it because it's awkward. People don't want to hear about it or talk about it because they don't know what to say. As a result of that, no one shares and no one expresses anything, and the community becomes unaware or remains unaware of what's really going on with the individual. And the individual also feels like they're burdening the burdening the community. All that was to try and explain what I think is a first step for any community. A first step for any community is to gain an ability to discuss these things without getting flustered, without getting scared, without getting, you know, feeling very, very awkward, being able to say the right things, not the wrong things. If someone's depressed, you don't say, oh, why are you depressed? You know, like the sun is shining, your life is great. Yeah, they know all that, but they're still suffering. You know, they they don't need you to invalidate their experience. They need you to validate it many times. They need you to come and say, look, I'm sorry that you're feeling so bad. What can I do? You know, like, how can I help you, right? They don't need you to try and cheer them up. It's not about cheering. In the same way that someone with, with uh, cancer doesn't need the very same thing. They're suffering from cancer. They, the fact that the Shatsada is shining won't change that. You know, depression is not an issue of a mindset. It's an issue of person really needs help, outside help. So that's a first step for a community. I'm sorry if that was a bit of a long answer. No, but it's bringing to point something very important, something that I'm working on a lot in my practice, which is that therapy is, or the individual support is really only one branch. In our in my own organization for mental health, particularly with students, we have a branch called education. I don't really believe that mental health education is an infinite portal, you know, like Torah, you actually can get mastery, pretty good mastery of some of the main issues going on and some of the main treatments with a solid amount of education and learning. It, it could be done and it could be done. Not you don't need everybody to be so sophisticated with it, but a, a baseline level of mental health education is exactly. actually not very hard and could be done pretty easily and pretty fast. So that's one other branch. And then we have peer support, which is communities actually talking to each other about this in a supportive way. So mental health is a lot broader of a system. So the first step that you're recommending for people, and this is what, what kind of bothers me, is that we, it's not, okay, people should talk about it. And it's like, you know, here and where, where I'm in Canada, we have like the company Bell, they say, Bell, let's talk. But people don't really know how to talk or what to talk about. It's just, let's, let's talk. I think it's more like, let's learn. Um, let, let's learn about issues and, and bring it to the forefront. I think that what's a little bit strange for me or difficult and challenging about mental health in particular is A, why today it is the way it is, how halakhically we even understand the different categories, what it might be to be in a, a, you know, dep like depressed, so to speak. When is it, when are you, you know, in, entering a certain category where you're a putter and meets both? These are all like complex questions. Uh, and how do they saw it in the past, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is today, this is what's going on. This is probably, probably some of the biggest issues in our community. So we have a, a community-based structure that we want to, to have being supported. Is there anything else that comes to mind for you that's really important that you've seen be really successful in the communities that you're a part of? I think that uh, besides developing a conversation about it, like we just said, uh, that could be important also in designating an individual who's in charge of dealing with mental health in the community. So in other words, you know, we have uh, many, you know, our, I always say that 
that the Orthodox community is unbelievably good at chesed, meaning we we have honed this uh, skill for decades, for for centuries, really, right? And we're able to support people with physical ailments and you know the elderly and uh, support uh, you know uh, birthing mothers and this and that. I mean, it's unbelievable. This the the Orthodox community does chesed like pros, like pros. We do it so. That causes two things. It's a really good thing when you get it, and it's an absolutely horrible thing when you don't. In other words, because of the ability of the Jewish community to do it so well, if there are people who are suffering who don't get that attention, they feel all the more neglected than if they were living in a community that never did it for anybody. And that really is what happens over here as well, is that you have this situation where you know no one feels like they are necessarily uh, uh, paid attention to uh, because they don't reveal that they're going through something many times or because the community doesn't know how to how to react. So I, in speaking to many people with lived experience, have heard both sides of that coin. In other words, when the community has been involved, I've heard amazing praises and, and statements from people with lived experience about how wonderful it is that the community supported them and vice versa. When the community has not, I have heard the loneliness, the aloneness, the, the feeling of, you know, abandonment um, uh, and, uh, and, and the need to basically tend to your own issues, you know, um, as a result of that, you know, so we really need to do that. So how can we do that? For example, you can, like I said at the beginning, you can take someone and make him the mental health, so to speak, liaison, if you will, you know, or the mental health committee member or whatever it is you want to call it, you know, um, for the community. And then those who want to reveal, you know, can come to him and he can, you know, liaise, whatever. And even those who don't want to can anonymously ask him for help, you know, and people can bring stuff to him and he can bring it to the family or whatever it is. In other words, there are ways to do it. And once someone is designated as such, it'll make a huge difference because People will be like, okay, now we have a designated person for this. And I always find that when someone is designated, it makes a huge difference. Like, I'll give you an example. You know, when I tell people, you know, who I think, you know, should be able to make a call on Shabbat in order to talk to someone. So if I tell them, you know, if you need to, you can always call me. I'll pick up the phone for you. I've never had anybody call me. And I don't think it's because they're afraid to break Shabbos. I think it's because they're afraid of me breaking Shabbos. In other words, they don't. They know that they need it, but they feel bad that they should make me break my Shabbos. So therefore, they won't call. But if it was a helpline, like Hatzalah or something like that, right? They'll call no problem because right. that, that's their job. That's those guys. That's you know they're designated for that, right? When someone is designated for that, when it's not just about me, they're not trying. They're not doing me a favor, but that's their thing. So then it's okay, you know. And it's the same thing over here. If the rabbi stands up in shul, you know, and says, anybody who has a mental health can come to me. I'm not saying no one will come to him, but it's different than if there is an appointee of the community who is meant to coordinate all the efforts on this issue, you know, and then people know, okay, everybody comes to that guy, you know, like that's, that's his job. He's not doing me any favors. He's doing everybody a favor, whatever, but it's not just for me. So that's, you know, I think that that's significant, you know, and, could very well be helpful. So it's not just, I was going to ask a little bit about 
the, the rabbinic approach to this and how rabbis should be involved in this, but it sounds like what would be really interesting is to have maybe one, two, three per, per community, whether it's part of a broader organization where these people have tr some training, some understanding, mental health first aid, and they're just a lifeline people know that they can call on Shabbos that's not intimidating. That would be something special. With When it comes to rabbis, uh, it's very interesting for me to learn about and people have documented this. Um, Thomas Sazaz, he wrote the book of the myth of psychotherapy, not in any way to take away like mental health is not being real, sure. but but that there's a history before there were psychologists and psych psychiatrists, there were shamans, teachers, rabbi, like everybody's been working in sort of, so to speak, the mental health world to varying degrees. Thankfully, today we do a lot of research. We're studying the mind. We're learning so much about humanity, our thoughts, what our relationship to our thoughts, which by the way, I think is probably one of the most important things to learn about is how to deal with, with cognition in our own thinking patterns and thoughts. But as a, as a general community right now, is there any case or, or I don't know, case or injunction to be made not to be mental health educated, not to, as a, as a rabbi, learn and do an educational process similar to what you've done? Is there anything potentially more important than that, that you, that you see? Something more important than mental health is that? Like in terms of, most rabbis of communities, there's a, you know, you're, you have a, a job description that looks, you have a lot of different things. It's pretty yeah. standardized yeah. of what you're supposed to do. Is there anything that's sort of not mainstream or not standardized yet, or not a part of every person's description that mental, do you think mental health is one of those things that needs to be kind of standardized in that way? Yes, I do think so. But once again, I'm, I, I am not saying that every rabbi needs to be an expert in every field, you know, so it's important to realize I'm not saying that. I do think that rabbis do need a basic understanding, and that's, that's all I'm asking, you know, a basic understanding of the issues at the base of this field, of this issue. And the reason that I think that is because even if rabbis do not know how to rule on a specific issue, which is fine, I think they need to know that they don't know how to rule on that specific issue. In other words, if they think that the issue is simple, or if they think that the issue uh, does not need any sort of uh, depth, then they are mistaken, you know? And therefore, what I'm more worried about than rabbis not knowing how to rule is that I'm worried about rabbis who think they know how to rule and don't, yeah? Because that, to me, is the more dangerous thing. So at the basis level, like I said, at the most basic level, what I'm asking for is what I think needs to be done is that all rabbis need to go through some form of training with regards to mental health, just so that they recognize what's going on in that area. And then, of course, the rabbi can decide if he wants to become an expert or he wants to defer to others and to say, look, I don't know how to rule on this. But that's at least now you know that there is what to ask. And that, I think, is very, very important. So, yes, look, I think this, this can be talked about these issues can save lives or if, if in a bad case, can also doom someone, uh, unfortunately, to uh, you know harmful activities such as suicide or self harm, you know, etc. Uh, and the rabbi could be a part of that. I'm not saying the rabbi will directly cause that, but the rabbi can be a part of that, unfortunately, if he doesn't know how to rule. So I can't imagine a field that is more pressingly needed for rabbis to have a basic understanding in, you know, than this. When it comes to faith and spirituality, actually talking about God directly with people that are suffering, 
there's a lot of literature, you know, suffering didn't start today in relation to mental health. We have Tehillim, we have people crying out to Hashem, asking, you know, asking God for, for help, for healing, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from learning mental health education, learning about skills, tools, strategies, how to deal with it, how to increase and improve well-being, how does faith directly play a role in the way that you support people? Good question. Um, I think it's important to realize that when people ask a question, that means something. In other words, they're not just looking for me to tell them, just care for your mental health and everything will be fine. And don't worry about the halacha. And don't worry about the Torah. That's not why they're asking. That they could have done without asking me. If they just didn't care about the Torah at all and just wanted to care for their mental health, they don't need me to give them the green light. The reason that they want to ask me is because they want to, to remain religious. They want to remain connected. They want to be part of Klal Israel, of the Jewish community. So that's why they come to the rabbi, because yes, they want to care for the, and tend for the, to their mental health, but they want to do so from within a religious uh, mindset and within a religious context. So that's very significant to me. And I always think about that when someone comes and asks me a question. I can always tell them not to fast on Yom Kippur, but then I'm taking away a very significant religious experience from them. And I need to know that I've, I've created a hold in their soul to some extent by telling them not to fast on Yom Kippur. I need to fill that hole with something. I need to help that out. Um, and faith, therefore, as you, you know, asked me whether you know, uh, that plays a role, it plays a huge role. Their faith in Hashem, their faith in, in me as a purveyor of halacha, their faith in, uh, in the system is significant to getting them through whatever it is they're going. Look, I always say religion can be a uh, uh, help or a, or a hindrance. It could be Sam Chaim or Sam Hamavet, as Chazal said. In other words, we, it could be an amazing, amazing tool, amazing, amazing um, like anchor for someone who's looking for stability. And yes, religion is an anchor, especially halachic Judaism, which gives you so many things to do, which sometimes people complain about, but it also gives you an anchor, you know, in terms of every day you can get up, you do very, very grounded things, you know, every single day. That's helpful to people a lot of times. And I don't want to take that away from anybody. You know, I'm not looking to do that. But on the other hand, sometimes I do need to in order to help with their mental health. But then the, the flip side of that, as I said before, is that we need to fill that void with something. So faith is paramount over here, both for someone who's trying to keep the faith and both for someone who's trying to deal with their mental health but wants to return at some point back to keeping halacha fully they have to have faith, strong faith that can keep them afloat during the difficult times. It's amazing the sensitivity and nuance that you have to have. For example, some people can find, and this is, comes to theology, your belief about God's involvement in the world. Some people find great comfort that everything is from God. Every moment is relationship with God. Everything is a message from God. God is with you. That for some people is music to the soul. I'm not alone. This is all for a greater purpose. This all has meaning for other people. For example, that I work with, if you are suffering from intrusive thoughts where you have all these intrusive thoughts coming in about things happening, you know, you're bad. You're trying to even decode and find God in every nanosecond of your life. And everything has to be a sign and meaningful. This hashgacha pratis can actually be 
absolutely maddening. So you, you're not just, <laughs> when you deal with people coming to you, I imagine you have to have this slow, careful, considerate understanding of their world, how they see God, what it means to them, the way that they're asking you, the way they're approaching you. If someone said, came into you with the same issues, but they said, you know, it, it's really so hard for me to try and figure out what does God want for me every second versus someone who says, I can't find God in every second. You would have a different approach to, to that. Do, do you notice that a lot of times it's like so variant, every single case, every single person's need to understanding, not just what to do in action, but how to see the world and how to interact with God. Absolutely. Um, you're absolutely right. Every, every, the beginning when I started writing the book, and I would come to mental health professionals and ask them a question, I would say, you know, like, one of, let's say, take, let's say an example of what I told you in the, uh, before, uh, you know, that person or should, or, or, or is it necessary, I would ask the mental health professional, is it necessary uh, for a person with depression to listen to music on Shabbat, right? Is that necessary for them? So the mental health professional would always tell me in that question, in any question that I asked that way, he would say, I can't answer that. I'd say, why? He said, there's not enough information. You know, someone with depression says he needs to listen to music. What does that even mean? Yeah, what's the history? What are the symptoms? You know, we have, we traditionally, we have like, you know, right, nine different kinds of uh, things that we take off to decide the level of depression, you know, et cetera, to like what are we talking about? We're talking about anhedonia, we're talking about lack of sleep, we're talking about sleeping too much, we're talking about uh, suicidal idea. Like, what, what, tell me more. Yeah, like I can't just hear the word depression and know how, what to tell you. Yeah, it's not enough. And any self-respecting, I think, mental health professional will tell you the same thing about all the conditions. Just saying the buzzwords, anorexia, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're almost valueless. They give you a general direction of what you're looking for, but I need to know more in order to tell you what's good for the person. So yes, of course, you're absolutely right. The same thing is true for uh, spiritual leaders, right? When someone comes and tells them that they are in need of such and such uh, thing or they're suffering in such and such way, right? We need to know whether uh, spiritually they're looking for one thing or another. And many times after I uh, give the person a ruling, I will ask them, is this good for you? Like, did I, did I answer your question? And one time I remember someone said to me, what kind of question is that? You're the rabbi, you tell me what's right. What is it like? Uh, You'll change the answer if I say no, right? What's the halacha? That's what I want to know. And I told the person, okay, it's not that simple, yeah? Because of course you're right. I'm not going to make up the halacha according to what you need. But I do want to know that my answer fit the question that you were asking. Because if you feel like I missed the point completely, so of course I need you to restate the question and tell me again so I can understand because maybe I didn't get it. Maybe I didn't understand how much pain you're in, how much suffering you're going through, or what the exact issue that you're searching for is, you know, so asking the question, was that okay, you know, or does the, does the stock answer what you asked me is not a stupid question, and it's not a question that basically creates, uh, that, that presents a lacha as like a supermarket of ideas where you just pick the one that you like. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean to say is, this field is sensitive. This field is sensitive to the degree that I'd like to know that I understood you and that you understood me and that the answer that I've given you has solved your issue. 
if it hasn't solved your issue, I'm not going to make up a halacha to solve your issue, but I will rethink whether or not I can give a different answer. It's a because there's such little precedent. You have all these other issues that come up today with huge amounts of literature from Achronim to Rishonim. You know, it's where it's clear cut and easy and, and not easy, but you follow up and you get there. But it's amazing how hard it might be for you and for others in this field to really find the good quality, reasonable answers. I just want to ask you to, to kind of end this end off this conversation. What's been the most meaningful part? Is there a story that comes to mind for you where the work that you've done has really helped people, has really helped them find life, maybe avoided, I'm not going to get into what, what suicide is in halacha, but, but not taking their life and choosing life. Is there anything that comes to mind for you that you can share with us? Uh, there are many stories, but um, I'll share one with you, which I share often. There was a woman who, um, who turned to me two or three years back, and she had a depression and anxiety and eating disorder. And she asked me what to do on Shabbat. And I asked her, what do you do on a regular day? She said, on a regular day, I usually take a hot shower or I listen to music. But I can't do either of those things on Shabbat, which is why I'm asking. So I said to her, look, I'm happy to answer your question. Before I do, I, I am quite curious to know what you've done on Shabbat until now. In other words, you didn't develop this yesterday. So therefore, you've been obviously coping in some way. What have you been doing? So she said to me, until now, what I've been doing is I've either been inducing vomiting or I've been cutting myself in a non-suicidal fashion. That statement that she said to me, that was, was it, it, it brought home a very significant lesson to me. And that lesson is, no one's waiting for me to pastor. No one's waiting around for the rabbis to come up with the right solutions. They're dealing every day. They're coping every single day in one way or another. I know some rabbis who would say, look, I'm not sure that we can say this, we can say that. Well, honestly, we have to get sure. I'm not saying a rabbi should rule on something he's not certain about. Obviously, that's bad policy. But find a rabbi who is sure, or you yourself learn and get sure. The sooner the better. Because people are not waiting for us. They are coping with these issues in whatever way crosses their mind or whatever they think they can do best. And they're doing it sometimes badly to the extent that they self-harm. And we can tell them you don't have to self-harm. We can tell them you don't have to do this. We can tell them you can have a decent life that is not a violation of your orthodox principles and at the same time cares for your mental health. And that's what we need to understand is that every day that passes, there are, there's just more people who need our help. They are not waiting. So therefore, there's no vacuum. We need to be there to fill in that void and the sooner the better. And what gives you the strength to do that? I, I listen, I, I'm very fascinated with the role of a posek, the role of somebody who's taking risks. It's, to me, it's a risk-taking endeavor for the community because you put your reputation on the line, you put your understanding on the line, you're going to get criticism. But you're doing it. You're doing it. And, and when you wake up thinking, I got another day uh, to do this, what gives you the strength to do that? I guess maybe it's just because that's what you think your role is in the world to, as a posek, as somebody giving over Jewish law? Look, 
I'll answer you in two ways. Even though I believe in the urgency of this topic, as I just uh, explained, I also do believe, and I also mentioned this a few times, that rabbis should not rule on things they don't know. So therefore, I'm not encouraging uh, ruling, you know, like off the cuff, you know, without any real time. I myself, as I mentioned before, spent two and a half years sitting with a psychiatrist and learning this issue properly. So I'm not advocating uh, any sort of um, amateur uh, psych. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I do think that people should start now. In other words, then sit down and learn. Why do I feel comfortable? I feel comfortable because I spent eight years in yeshiva learning and because I spent two and a half years with a psychiatrist and because I've been dealing with this for many, many years. So yes, so I, I've, I've put myself out there and gained the experience. And today people see me as an expert. Was I an expert five and a half years ago when I started? No, I was not an expert four years ago when people started asking me more and more questions. I'm sure I made a few mistakes. I did the best that I could with the wisdom that I had, but um, but I'm sure that as I go, you know, I become more and more aware, more and more to start somewhere. So rabbis out there who are thinking to themselves, well, how can we do this? 100% get good at it. Start moving forwards. People really need you. Like, really? They really need you. And the second judition and, and, and learning, which of course needs to be done in order to be good at this, you know, is that I had an unbelievable Rebbe, of Nachum Eliezer Rabinovich Zetzal, who was unbelievable and just gave us the backbone, you know, to do uh, all this sort of thing. So uh, that's my second part of the answer. I said that in short. It's amazing. I, I'm just fascinated. Dr. Mark Shapiro has a whole series on the great rabbinic thinkers of the last 200 years and just their originality, their de- decisions, Rabinovich being, being one of them. He spent some time in Toronto as well, where, where, I, where we are. It's special. It's it shows the uniqueness. It shows the urgency that people have in it. Honestly, shows the love of of life and the love of the community to bring life, which is what halacha is meant to do. So, really appreciate you sharing a little bit. I have so many more questions for this, but at the bottom line, we see that lo tirtzach is much more than not, do not kill. It's also uvacharta lechaim, and it's not just about physical life, physical death, but spiritual life, spiritual death, mental life, mental death, and the approach and the decision of both leaders in the communities as well as the community itself and every individual to just do their best to work on this, to improve this, and to allow for a greater, greater flourishing in in the in the communities that we all live in and in Kalal Yisrael and in the whole world. And thank you so much for sharing. And I hope people please go to Maglay Nefesh and, and start to broker the conversation. Thank you so much. And that's all for today. Thanks for taking the time to listen And we hope this episode has, in some small way, enriched your understanding of yourself, others, and God as you learn to integrate the Big Ten into your life. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening.